Welcome to the North Rock Church Podcast. For more great content and updates, visit northrockchurch.com. Enjoy the message. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Jesus, we pray you get our live stream running again. Amen. It's always fun when you're preaching, and I'm like, oh my gosh, everything stopped working. It's okay. We're good. You guys are here. Um, so, on that note, it's been a week, right? It has been a week. Personally, it's been a week for me. Collectively, with the recent events that's happened in Atlanta and Boulder this week, it's been a week. And when we have things that happen like that, when we have things that we're struggling through and suffering through and don't understand, it's easy in that moment to start feeling anxiety and stress. When I saw the, the uh, especially about the two shootings that happened this week, when I saw that, I began paying attention to the conversations that were happening in the media, on social media, with people I was talking with. And I noticed... Um, the reactions become very much, uh, especially as people are identifying with the victims of those events, you began having anxiety. That could have been me. This could have, I, I've been there. I've done this. Are we safe? What's going on? God, where were you? God, are you sleeping? It's easy for us to forget that violence and pain and suffering is kind of the norm of the world we live in. It's easy for us to kind of blink our, not blink, at when we hear about things because it's almost, it's so overwhelming. So it's, it's at that moment we um, say, well, th- it happened to them because of this reason or this happened to people over there or this doesn't happen where I live. And to justify and to defend ourselves against the type of pain and suffering we see people going through. It's also easy for us at that moment to start saying, well, if this just changed, if this just happened, this thing that we change in the world, this will make that never happen again. And the truth of that is that none of that is true. We begin to, suffering is everywhere. Suffering is unavoidable. It's overwhelming. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And aren't we glad that he finished that up with a sentence that said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But it is easy when we find ourselves, whether nationally, in a a moment of chaos and destruction and suffering, globally in a pandemic where we are struggling and confused and uncertain of what lies ahead, or even individually and personally, when we're dealing with betrayal and loss and death, and grief, and suffering, it's easy in that moment to feel like, God, where are you? Are you sleeping? In Psalm 44, the psalmist cries out, he says, um, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Because in those moments where we're struggling with the the knowledge of what's happened, we start thinking God is absent. We start thinking that we've been punished. We start thinking that we've been abandoned and lost and we're stuck in this and we can't do anything about it. So this morning, I want to talk about suffering. 
I want to talk about how the life of Jesus models for us how we walk through that. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. And I thank you most of all for your presence. Open our hearts and our minds to what you have to speak today. Show us your truth and your comfort and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when we have these moments of suffering and pain and trouble and turmoil and affliction, what are we supposed to do? Well, Scripture tells us in Romans 12, 12, it says, be patient in affliction. In, um, you know what, I have all these bound, but sometimes when I have notes, I feel like I have to look at them. And I forget that I know it. Philippians 4.4, 4, 1 Peter 1.6, say to rejoice at all times in suffering and trials and tribulation. Romans 12.14 says, bless those who persecute you. Proverbs 3.6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And Romans 12.1 tells us that we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice because it is our holy act of worship. So these are inspiring and comforting verses that tell us how we are to walk through trial and tribulation. And it's, I know it's what I want to do, and I know that it's probably what you want to do, but the problem is that when we start suffering, we can get stuck. Simone um, Weil was a French philosopher, and she wrote an essay titled, The Love of God in Affliction. And in her essay, she pointed out five different places where we can get stuck when we are suffering and in, in, in trial. The first one is isolation. Isn't it true that as soon as we start dealing with a circumstance that is painful to us and a trial and a tribulation, we instantly begin to feel like we're all alone in it. No one's going to be able to understand this. No one knows what I'm going through. Nobody will get it. And unfortunately, sometimes people isolate themselves from you because they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. So we get stuck in this moment of isolation, dealing with our suffering all on our own. The other thing that can happen is we can have be self-absorbed. Um, Tim Keller talks about it, and he says it's a uh, self-implosion. It's like we become our own black hole, and everything around us disappears, and everything gets sucked into this blackness and this deepness that we're dealing with, and we have no energy, we have no time, we have no ability to focus on anyone else around us. And all we're able to focus on and think about is our own troubles and our own needs. And, and it's, we get stuck in that, right? Like it's natural. It's how we respond in that moment. We're overwhelmed, we're tired, we're shocked, we don't understand why it's happening. The next thing that can happen is shame and condemnation. This is a pitfall that can accompany affliction. I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of times that I am not feeling guilty and ashamed about things that I ought to feel guilty and ashamed about in my life. But then when trial and tribulation comes up, I suddenly start thinking of all those things and thinking, okay, this is probably what happened. And I beat myself up and it becomes this worse spiral. I'm so ashamed of myself and I'm so upset that I did that and I caused this to happen and this is, this is I deserve this. And we get stuck in that, thinking, this is why I should be living this life instead of the life God's promised me. The next one is anger. 
depending upon your cause and your context of the difficulty that you're experiencing, this could be that you're angry at God. It could be you're angry at yourself. It could be you're angry at other people or this situation, or it could be a combination of all of them, which makes us a delight to be around. (laughs) And sometimes we don't realize it's anger because it comes out in us as sarcasm, of cynicism, and bitterness. We don't realize we're angry. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that I'm angry about this situation. But what's coming out is toxic. And because we're self-absorbed at that moment, everything that is coming back in is toxic. Right? And probably the last thing, the last thing she highlighted was, she calls it a, a complicity, complicity with the affliction. Simone Bay said at that point that the suffering... Um, little by little, turns the soul into its own accomplice by injecting a poison of inertia into us. We become comfortable with our discomfort. We become content with our discontent. Our self-pity is sweet. And we can use it at that moment to excuse any behaviors that we normally would not justify. So that's the problem, is we see these verses, we see these promises and these truths, and we say, yes, God, that's how I want to live. But so often we can get stuck and trapped in the miry swamp of these habits, of these responses that come up out of us when we're dealing with suffering and pain. So this whole sermon series is about the incarnational life of Jesus. It's about how we look at the way he lived his life, not just focusing on his death and resurrection, but how did Jesus, in the 33 years he was alive, how did he live and how did he model for us how we are to live our life? So let's take a look at Jesus and what he did and how he dealt with it. Because the truth is, Jesus, as God, came down, set aside his glory, became flesh, took on our humanity, And in that moment, he took on all the suffering that we deal with. He dealt with rejection, abuse, misunderstanding, ridicule, rebuke, hunger, poverty, pain, tiredness, bereavement, brokenness, torture, and death. Everything that we can experience that is suffering and painful in our life, Jesus experienced in his life. He experienced the loss of a close relationship, the betrayal of one who was closer to him as part of his inner circle. The betrayal, not just, oh, you don't like me and said mean things about me, but oh my goodness, you caused me to die. That betrayal is painful. And we felt that, right? We've had people, maybe we didn't physically die, but we've died inside with the betrayal of people who are close to us. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He understands it and he gets it. The world expects, Martin Luther has this theology of the cross, the world expects that God is this all-powerful, amazing being, and that his followers are people who summon up their own courage and their own abilities to follow his laws and follow his rules, and that's when they are blessed and strengthened. And the truth is, Tim Keller talks about in his book, Walking with God Through Affliction, um, Pain and Suffering, he says, the deepest revelation of the character of God is in the weakness, suffering, and death on the cross. 
He was opposite to everything they expected. The religious leaders of God's, of Jesus' day expected a Messiah to come who was going to destroy the Roman Empire and create political independence for the Israel people and, and be this, like, you know, superhero. And instead, what they got was a Messiah who spent time with the downcast, who spent time with the rejects of society, who wept, who talked about love and peace and grace, who died in the worst, most degrading death possible. That's the Messiah that we got, that they got. Jesus experienced on the cross the only suffering that really could ever really hurt us. He experienced separation from God. In that moment, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he cried out that, because he experienced that, we don't ever have to. We don't ever have to cry out and say, God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's never going to be true of us. He is always with us. Instead, Jesus, through that suffering, through that sacrifice, through that pain, he brought us forgiveness and love and adoption into the family of God for all time. So, not so. I don't have an answer for you about why God allows suffering and pain in our lives. I don't have an answer for you the reason why that comes and why that happens. I do have an answer for you of what it's not. The reason is not that he doesn't love us. Because he sent his son. Jesus accepted the assignment, voluntarily came to spend time with us, to dwell with us, to move into the neighborhood, right? He came to be present with us in a very real and physical way to experience everything that we have. He did that because, why? Because he loves us. Because he cares. The reason also is not that we are being punished. Because Jesus on the cross took our punishment. We can't be punished for things that Jesus was already punished for. So when we go through trial and tribulation and suffering, it's not punishment. Now's the so. What do we do with that? How do we follow his example? How do we move forward in this? First of all, uh, Tim Keller in his book, he talks about that there's four different types of suffering. I think it's important for us to recognize that not all suffering is the same. That it's not all for the same reason or cause. The first type of suffering that he mentioned was a suffering that is caused by our own actions and failures. Again, let me be very clear that this is not a punishment for our actions and failures. It is God in his loving, gracious, merciful kindness allowing us to experience the consequences of what we've done as a wake-up call and a drawing back to him. If we never had any consequences for our failures or our bad actions, we wouldn't stop doing them. Because there's a reason. They're fun sometimes for a little bit. He allows us to feel that. He allows us to sit in it 
So in that moment, the pain we're experiencing is going to be more, the path to wholeness is going to be more about reconciliation and uh, asking forgiveness, repenting, and moving forward that way, accepting his invitation. The next type of suffering is caused through the attacks or betrayals of others. This is not anything that we have caused to happen. Simply the actions of others put us in a situation where we are feeling pain and suffering. In that moment, our response is going to be more about offering them forgiveness. Right? The next category of pain and suffering we deal with is just universal sufferings. The things that throughout the rhythms of life, throughout the schedules of life, we all maybe will, probably will, experience. They're inevitable. Death, loss, illness, grief. And when I say loss, I don't just mean loss of relationships. It's uh, loss of finances, loss of securities or, you know, beliefs that we thought we held that were correct. Loss of identity through, because we put our identity in the wrong thing. And then the final one is horrendous suffering. And this is those massive catastrophes that aren't part of the normal routine of life. Unfortunately, I feel like sometimes they're becoming more a part of the normal routine of life. But mass shootings... Massive wars, events that are horrendous in nature. When we are able to uh, focus in on and understand what type of suffering we're dealing with, and uh, admittedly they can be, you know, a combination of multiple in some cases, but when we're able to focus in on it, we're also able at that point to see, okay, which, where do I go with this? How do I carry this? What do I do? Because if it's something that's one of the first two that's directed to us, then we maybe have an action that we do in that of being like, God, you know, I need to repent or I need to move forward. And, and there's a path for that of how we move out of that pain and suffering. But some of the other ones, if there's nothing that we can do about it, it's just, God, how are you in the midst of this and moving with us? So Tim Keller, again, this is a great book. If any of you are dealing with pain and suffering, which we all are, so everybody read it, it's a great book. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Um, so he, he provided not steps. There's no one-size-fit-all way that we can deal with pain and suffering. There's nothing that's going to work because we have different types of sufferings and we have different temperaments and we're all in different places with our walk with God and there's all these different things. So there's never going to be a way or a place that says, this is, you know, five steps to overcome suffering and pain and be a joyful person. No, there's never going to be that. But there are things that God, that Jesus modeled in his life that we can follow through. And so, okay, this is what he showed us to do. The first thing is to walk with God. Walking is a repetitious, slow progress that we can keep up for quite a while. I can walk a lot longer than I can run. Suffering has to be walked through. We can't avoid it. We have to meet it, and we have to walk into it and through it without denial, resentment, fear, or despair. We walk through it. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You keep going one foot in front of the other. Thankfully, we are not alone in that walking. Isaiah 43, 42, 3, nope, 43, 2. I was right the first time. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. We walk through so much, but we are not alone in it. And we're not even necessarily having to lead the way, right? We're following. It's like when you're hiking, you know, and you're like, I am just looking at the ground. I am walking and watching the feet of the person in front of me. I don't need to know where I'm going. I just need to know where they're going. And hopefully we stop soon. We can ask Chad about that. Day, so practically, what does that look like for us? Practically, what does it look like for us to walk daily with God? Is a daily repetition of prayer, of worship, of the word, of fellowship with others, of service. It doesn't have to be all in the same day. It doesn't have to be a checklist that you mark off and say, walked with God today. It's just consistent and constant. And this is good when we do that because it doesn't matter if we feel it or not. It doesn't matter if we're dry. We just keep going right? We're just walking. This will end eventually. All right, so the next way, these are not in linear order. This is just things we can do, is to weep. Jesus wept a lot in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Lament is a valid response to troubles. I feel like in some ways we have lost the ability to lament. We feel like, oh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I will rejoice at all times. I have to do all these things, and so I have to be happy, happy, go, go all the time. And there is a valid time for us to lament. In fact, that verse I mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 6, lamenting and rejoicing are talked about in the same sentence. You are rejoicing and lamenting together. You're feeling it all. It's all there. We are feeling it. We are feeling it. So if we deny it and push it down and say, I'm not allowed to do that, first of all, it's going to make us really resentful and angry at God that he makes us be happy all the time. And we're never going to understand what's going on with us. And it's just going to build up and build up and build up. Job lamented. In Job, in the first chapter of Job, when he finds out that everything in his life that is good and that he's held value of has been gone. It's like messenger after messenger after messenger. It's like, I would stop letting them in at some point. It says Job dropped to his knees, tore his robes, cried out, and then it says, but in all of that, he did not sin. We need to be brutally honest with our feelings. We need to share our disappointment, our frustration with God. Because the reason why Job didn't sin is that he did all of that to God. He wasn't off complaining to other people. He was saying to God, you told me that this isn't right. Why are you doing this? What is going on? I curse the day that I've been born. But still always to God. Always facing him. Always letting him know. Still connecting in with him. He can take it. Isaiah 42.3. This is why I messed up earlier because they're the same. Isaiah 42.3 says, Jesus, it's talking about the suffering servant, and we know that that person is Jesus, and it says, a bruised reed he will not break. That word bruised, that is a deep, 
contusion under the flesh that can't be seen, but it is fatal. There is a deep bruise within us when we're walking through suffering and pain. We are walking around just fine. People don't know. They don't understand what we're dealing with, what we're fighting under, how broken we are. They don't get it. They don't see it. But it's fatal if we don't allow that to heal, right? And that's where we cry out. Jesus, when he went to go see Lazarus, um, when Lazarus died and Jesus went to him, it it says there that Jesus cried out. And that word for cry there, it isn't like, oh, he was so sad. It was a deep, guttural, angry cry. He was so mad. He was so upset. And he knew what he was doing next. He knew that this wasn't going to be forever. But he still in that moment cried out with anger and distress and frustration about the fact that his friend had died. We are allowed to do that. And it might be hard for us. So practically, if this is hard for you, if you feel uncomfortable with saying, God, I'm really mad at you right now. I don't like what you're doing and this hurts my feelings. And I wish that you would stop. I would suggest reading Psalm 88 because the psalmist says that. So I'm going to read it to you. This is from the message version. God, you're my last chance of the day. I spend the night on my knees before you. Put me on your salvation agenda. Take notes on the trouble I'm in. I've had my fill of trouble. I'm camped on the edge of hell. I'm written off as a lost cause. One more statistic, a hopeless case. Abandoned as already dead. One more body in a stack of corpses. And not so much as a gravestone. I'm a black hole in oblivion. You've dropped me into a bottomless pit, sunk me in a pitch black abyss. I'm battered senseless by your rage, relentlessly pounded by your waves of anger. You turned my friends against me, made me horrible to them. I'm caught in a maze and I can't find my way out. I'm blinded by tears of pain and frustration. I call to you, God. All day I call. I wring my hands. I plead for help. I'm standing my ground, God, shouting for help. At my prayers every morning, on my knees each daybreak, why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? For as long as I remember I've been hurting, I've taken the worst you can hand out, and I've had it. Your wildfire anger has blazed through my life. I'm bleeding, and I'm black, and I'm blue. You've attacked me fiercely from every side, raining down blows till I'm nearly dead. You made lover and neighbor alike dump me, the only friend I have left his darkness. That is the end of the psalm. Many of these psalms of lament end on a high note. This one doesn't because sometimes the light doesn't come right away. And we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures that were put into the canon that is our our Bible. God didn't censor this prayer out. God left this prayer to show us that it's okay It's okay for us to pour out our hurts and our anger and our frustrations. It's okay for us to tell him that. He's there in the darkness. And sometimes in the darkness is where we find him the strongest and the best. And we walk out with a new understanding of who he is. And we love him for who he is, not because of the benefits he gives to us. So trust, (laughs) that's the next one. 
And that's a tough one coming after lament, right? But the thing is, we can trust him because like I showed earlier, Jesus walked through it all. He understands. He is our high priest who understands. We can trust him because he's been there. We can trust him because he's sovereign. We can trust him because we know that he loves us. We can trust him when the rescue doesn't look the way we want, when the the answer is slow, because he's present in the slow answer and in the quick answer. He's present in the silence and in the noise. We can trust him because Romans 8.39 tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. So even when we don't understand, even when we're struggling and drowning and praying that Psalm 88 out loud, even then we can trust him because we know him to be good. We know him to be love. And we don't understand everything. All right, the next one is think, think, and love. Philippians 4, 6 through 8 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That peace of God is an inner equilibrium, and it's not something that we conjure up on our own. It's not like we say, okay, I've gotten rid of all of the anxious and angry thoughts, and now God is here with me, and it's good. No. It's something we learn, and it's something we find as the spirit of the living God descends into us and sits with us, and his very presence in our life dispels it. It's not something that we're forcing ourselves to think good thoughts. All of the self-help books out there tell us, you know, write those down and throw it away because this is getting rid of... No, that's not going to happen. It's not something we can do on our own because if it was, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Instead, we allow the Spirit into us and he changes that, those thoughts over time. I like um, also, so thinking. Um, Psalm 42 and 43, I've dealt with depression my entire life. Pretty bad depression at times. And at one point, I found the verse, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and there it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. We, we can talk to ourselves. We can think about our thoughts. We have self-communion. Why, why am I feeling this way? What is happening? What is going on? What am I even feeling? That's the question, right? The, the, the asking and the listening. But then there's an answering too. Put your hope in God. You're feeling left out and abandoned because of this situation. Well, this is the truth of the situation. You're feeling like God is asleep and he doesn't understand what's going on with you because he hasn't acted. And how can God not act? Because I wouldn't let anybody go through what I'm going through. Well, the truth of the matter is that I can lean on God and not my own understanding. That I know him to be good. That he gives good gifts. So that's thinking. Loving. St. Augustine talks about reordering your loves. Sometimes when we're dealing with suffering, it's because it puts a a finger on something. We realize something that is good in our life has become ultimate. In that moment, we realize, 
I'm getting my glory instead of getting my glory from God and my identity from God. I'm getting my glory and my authority, and I have put the love of family, friends, what you guys all think of me, my job, my position, how much money I make, where I live, what I look like. All of that has become more important to me than anything else. I have to reorder my loves, which doesn't mean that I decide to love those things less. It just means I decide to love God more. We focus, we fix our eyes on the cross, we fix our eyes on Jesus, we fix our eyes on how he lived his life. Those losses are painful. Please hear me. Suffering and pain is horrible and we hate it. But when our, our love is, our affections are in the right place, when our priorities are in the right place, it doesn't have to be devastating. It doesn't have to end us. I forgot thinking. Um, did you notice it says, um, present your request to the Lord with, um, I should know this. This is like a verse I've had memorized since I was little. Every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving. We are thanking him before he's answered. We are thanking him because we know him to be good and sovereign. And whatever he answers, we are thanking him for doing that. It reminds me of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He's asking for something to happen, but he's already okay if it's not. He's modeling for us. This is what I would really like. I would really like not to be betrayed and tortured and die. I would really like that a lot. Please, as I'm sweating blood because I'm so distressed, but not my will but yours be done. Because, again, he's sovereign. He's good. We know we love, he loves us. We know he's not punishing us. We know that there's got to be a reason, and we don't understand it. And we may never know it. But not my will, but yours be done. The final thing that he talks about is that we should have hope. When you look at how Jesus lived his life, he walked around with hope. He was constantly pointing people towards the future. He had a hope that wasn't settled in what he was doing at that moment. He had a hope that was settled in the future and in what was coming. He was pointing people always, the kingdom of God. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm coming back. And then in Revelation, as John is doing his, having his vision, he, he sees a new heaven and a new earth descend down. And he hears a voice that says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or praying for the old order of things have passed away. The erosion and loss of hope makes suffering unbearable. And if we put our hope in the answer, I'm suffering this right now, but I hope that God does this in this situation, and then I'm going to be fine. If we put our hope in an answer that we've determined on our own, we're going to suffer. We have to have a longer view. We have to have 
a bigger and higher view of the vista of what God is doing and recognize what our place is in history and who he is and how he moves and what he's doing. And maybe our hope is just that at some point there will be a new heaven and a new earth and God will draw me to him and he will wipe the tears from my eyes. And that's hard. But it is a hope. And it is true. And it's what he does. And as we do all of these things, it gets us. We're not in isolation because we are with a good and loving God and a living presence who's in us. We are not alone. And we have a community of believers who is supporting and encouraging us. I don't have to be self-absorbed because I am focusing my attention. I am fixing my eyes constantly on God. At moments I'll go, oh, this is stress. No, God. No, the cross. No, Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. He came for me. He rose again. I have hope in him. I am his daughter. He loves me. I'm part of the family. Condemnation and shame. I don't have to have that because I have been freed through the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the punishment for me. I can regret what I did, and I can repent of it, but I don't need to be bogged down and stuck in it. Anger. We can give that to him. Yell at him. Tell him how you're feeling. Tell him what's going on. Get it all out. Lance that wound. It's okay. It's going to be disgusting what all comes out, but do it anyways. Right? And then we never get complicit with our affliction because we never give in. We never settle in. We never say this is okay for me to be this way because we're constantly looking at the hope saying this will end. God has a better plan. Things will change. And even if they never do, he's still good in God. I was going to have the worship team come up, but I talked a long time, so I'm not going to do that because I want to honor you guys. God is not asleep. He's awake, and he's walking with us, and we can be awake. We don't have to be numbed down. When moments like this happen, we can turn to him and say, I don't understand. And and I mean, really, it seems naive and almost callous to say God has a plan in that. I don't think God necessarily has a plan. He didn't want that to happen, but God can work in it. And he grieves when we grieve. His heart breaks for us. Think of how many times we saw Jesus, which Jesus said to us, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Think how many times we've seen in the Gospels that he's grieving over what's happening to someone. That he's grieving over what's happening to people. It breaks his heart just as much as it breaks ours. But he's present. Father God, our hearts are broken over the pain and suffering that happens in this world. We are angry about it. We are frustrated and we don't understand. Yet we declare that you are good and you love us and you can be trusted. That you are, fra- that you are, fragile. <laughs> you are fragile with us. You treat us as fragile. We look at the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings and how he came and he was depressed and he was broken. And you held him and you touched him and you fed him and you gave him rest. You opened his eyes to the 
truth that he's not alone and that there's more and you strengthened him and you were with him. And God, we pray that same thing for all of us with the struggles we're dealing with, with the pain that we're experiencing. We seek your rest. We seek your nourishment and strength. We seek your presence in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we pray this prayer every week, right? This is our way of reminding ourselves. This is our repetition. This is our walk with God. This is our speaking and thinking the truth and realigning ourselves. Because sometimes even when we don't feel it, we still pray it. So let's pray it together. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the grave three days later. I receive forgiveness for every failure and sin in my life and give to you the right to direct my life from this day forward. I dedicate myself to learning the scriptures, living in fellowship with God's people, and following you in water baptism. In Jesus' name, I pray and trust. Amen. Amen. All right. Have a great week. I'd love to see you all here on Friday. It's going to be, I mean, talk about suffering. It's Good Friday. Let's just dig in deeper, right? And then Sunday's coming. Have a great week, guys. Thanks for listening to the North Rock Church Podcast. For more information about our church and upcoming events, check us out at northrockchurch.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram.